You're listening to the Matheson Private Client Podcast. This episode is on the Assisted Decision-Making Capacity Act 2015. Presented by Joe Bieschel, partner in the Financial Institutions Group and Head of Regulatory Risk Management and Compliance Team, and Lydia McCormack, a Senior Associate of the Private Client Department. This podcast focuses on the impact of the Act for financial bodies and intermediaries and is aimed at those working in or advising on the financial sector. Thanks very much for coming in. So I guess to start then, I know a lot of you, but not everybody. So my name is Joe Bieschel. I'm a partner here in our financial institutions group and I cover financial services regulation. So anything sort of regulated by the central bank, all the conduct of business rules and all of that stuff, if you like. And I guess my background then is, although I'm here a long time now, nearly 14 or 15 years before that, I was in industry in a, an asset management company, fund administration company called Invesco, Invesco Perpetual. And before that, I was in private practice. Like So I, I guess from the when I was working in industry, if you like, we do a very uh, good appreciation of the practical challenges of a lot of these kind of rules and how that works and system changes and proceduralization and training of staff and all that kind of thing. I, I ended up being the, the, the country head and managing director. Like, And one of the first revelations to me was, you know, you were the boss and you told people to do things. And, you know, they just didn't do it. Like, they, they just ignored you. Uh, and, you know, it was all around them having kind of systems, you know, um, I, I don't mean system necessarily in computers, like processes to em- embed things, proper training so that everyone would understand and all of that. And, and you know, and, and uh, we'll speak to, to speak to some of that. Am I right? Then we have Lydia, who's from our private client department and is really kind of the, uh, I guess, subject matter expert uh, in, in relation to this. And then further on, it's Colm Dawson again, who works with me on the, on the regulatory side as well. Again, we'll probably focus on the kind of the more practical implications for this particular change. And I think it is a particular change. Like, so I spend most of my entire career, but also my entire kind of working day covering various rules and regulations across multiple industry sectors all around the financial services. Most of them are inspired by European directives. You know, this isn't this development isn't from a European directive. It does actually come from a UN convention in terms of rights of people with disabilities. And it, it, it's quite interesting from that perspective. It's years and years in the making. I think for those of you familiar with the Consumer Protection Code, the idea of a vulnerable consumer is something along the lines of it. Because it's, it, it doesn't have a European genesis, if you like, there's no great EU guidance notes. There's no IOPA or ESMA guidance. There's no multiple layers of, of Q&As, if you like. And um, even the UK, who've done something similar, don't do it the same way, if you like. So we're kind of back to ourselves, if you like, in terms of interpretations. Um, as a citizen, if you know what I mean, in terms of helping people with disability, whether it's people with mental disability all their lives, if you like, or older people who develop difficulties later on in life, we can all see it and relate to it and, and I kind of get it, why it's a good thing. As Lydia will explain, I suppose it was a case of almost of, of easy to do it yourself or it's full power of attorney and, and, and now it's, it'll be much more nuanced if you like and you can see that's a good thing. But I know certainly from the practitioner and then formerly before that, you know, working in industry, turning that into a reality and how a staff member is going to deal with that and how an organisation is going to process that is particularly difficult. And then given the situations, it is by definition very sensitive if things go wrong and there's money missing, people are out of pocket and there could be regulatory issues in relation to that. There's obviously uh, the actual people involved are in difficulty and then there's the PR in relation to that. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's quite tricky. Now, if there's any, you know, there's a couple of months before implementation. So I think we're, we figure we're probably at the right time. I, I know some people here will probably have quite a familiarity with it and I'm assuming most probably don't. So uh, for those of you who are really in, into the detail, 
apologies if you like for, for everyone else. I think it, it, it's um, hopefully it'll be useful. So I might start with Lydia then. If you wouldn't mind just explaining to us where it's all at and the detail, if you know what I mean, yeah. if that's all right. Um, so I suppose, yeah, for those of you I suppose, who are less familiar, I thought it would be helpful to kind of go through the provisions that are really the most relevant from the Act for financial professionals. And I suppose to begin just kind of by way of a bit of a background, I mean, this Act is actually 15 years or so in the making and it's to replace some really old legislation that we have in capacity from the Lunacy Regulations Ireland Act of 1871. And it has enabled Ireland to, I suppose, enact now quite a few international conventions. And as, as Joe referred to, I suppose, most notably the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, which they, they have now done as an enforcer of this month. The Act was enacted in as far back as December 2015. Some of the provisions have been commenced, but they, these really relate to the appointment of the Director of Decision Support Services, who is now Anya Flynn. And really, that's the body that's going to oversee a lot of the provisions in the Act. But by and large, the Act has yet to be commenced. The codes of practice are being developed by the National Disability Authority. And there will be a code of practice for financial professionals, but we haven't seen that yet. And the Act, as we understand it, to be commenced in early 2019. So as I go through it, I suppose you'll probably see that there's quite a, a detailed piece of legislation and will involve a lot of training, particularly for frontline staff who are public facing. So when you consider the level of training and the level of procedures to be put in place kind of across a, a large number of staff for some organisations, there's really not a, a, not a huge amount of a lead in time. So I think now is, the, is certainly the right time to be considering it. And as I think a lot of us will know, like this issue is really topical at the moment. There's a lot of media coverage about people with capacity issues and their rights. And I suppose really the focus around the sanctity of their own decision making and particularly for elder abuse and, and fr uh, financial abuse and protecting vulnerable customers. So it is, I think, um, this issue is very topical and is very much at the fore, I think, for certainly for media focus anyway. So the Act itself is, is pretty broad. You know, for the purposes of today, I'll just cover the, the elements that I think are most relevant for financial professionals. And these, I suppose, are kind of two parts. One is we're going to have a new test for capacity. And the other is we're going to have a lot more supports for people with capacity issues. So at the moment, you know, you, you have an enduring power of attorney, which I ex expect most of you to be familiar with. And that's where somebody is completely, you know, is pretty much lost capacity entirely. They have an EPA in place and their attorney can make decisions. Now we're going to have a much more gradiated system whereby people have different supports depending on that they're, how incapacitated they are. And I suppose I'll, I'll get on to those. But I mean, this act is really quite groundbreaking, I suppose. It's legislation to empower people with capacity issues and it's to try to give them as much autonomy as possible to allow them to make more decisions for themselves, which is, you know, I think we'd all agree is a very, is a very noble and is a good intention. But I suppose from a practitioner's point of view, it will be very difficult to implement it. And I think particularly for financial professionals where you may not in some situations have you know, a customer relationship, you might know your customer and you might have quite a short space of time to actually assess, is there any capacity issues here to be, to be considered? So it is challenging, but at the same time, we have been working with clients and have identified ways in which this can be implemented in a systematic and proceduralized approach and rolled out, you know, across large organisations. So it is quite a challenging piece of legislation, but it is, it is still possible, I think, to implement it in, in a systematic way. So I suppose just getting on to the first part, which is really this new test for capacity. So the new test is, is called the functional test. And really, it's a, it's a time and issue specific test. So what you have to ask is, does the person 
understand their decision they're making at the time that they're making it. So the person may not have capacity to make that decision at that time, but they may have capacity to make another decision. So a less complicated decision, you know, or a decision they're more familiar with, or equally, they may be able to make that decision, but at a different time. So we're moving away from the current approach, which is kind of an all or nothing capacity approach. So somebody has capacity or they don't. So if you have a customer who may have um, Down syndrome, for instance, you, you know, you have to assess, do they have capacity to make each decision? I think there may have been a tendency in the past to say, well, that person doesn't have capacity. Now it's, you have to ask the question, well, do they have capacity to make this decision at this time? And there's an onus under the Act for you as financial providers and freely all service providers to actually facilitate them making a decision, which obviously provides a further layer of complication and challenge in implementing it. So I suppose looking at the functional test and trying to decide, well, does the person really understand the decision they're making? The points that they need to consider is at the time the decision has to be made, do they understand the nature and consequences of the decision to be made in the context of available choices at the time? Now, they don't need to understand everything about the decision, but what they do need to understand the key salient points. So I think from an organisation, you know, the first step in trying to, trying to create a systematic approach is one, thinking about, well, what are the, the most common decisions that a person with capacity issues is likely to be making in your organisation? You know, what are the regular kind of decisions, transactions that are coming up? And then two, to identify, well, what are the salient issues, you know, the material issues that they need to understand to really understand that decision. And I think that is a starting point for creating an approach for staff to follow that they can say, well, yes, actually, you know, they, they, they met all those material, they, they knew all those material points and, and, and is, is a way of documenting and also supporting that, satisfying themselves that, yeah, they, they did understand that decision because they knew the salient points. When it comes to applying the functional test, you know, the act is, is, it's all about facilitating decision-making, not preventing it. So the presumption is everyone has capacity. But if you have a person whose capacity is in doubt or may shortly be in doubt or where it's, it's in doubt um, or they don't have capacity in respect of one or other matter, then you need to, I suppose, define that person would be considered a relevant person under the act. So they're, they're a relevant person. I suppose this is the first of call really in, in applying the provisions of the Act because actually it's, this is where your frontline staff come in because they are the people who will need to be able to identify whether the person is a relevant person. So although you may have fewer but more specifically trained staff who can apply the functional test, actually it's the public facing staff that need to be able to identify is the person a relevant person because it's those people then that you would go on to apply the functional test to. So it's important that they're trained so that they can do that. Just as I have just an example of how, you know, you might apply the functional test. So there's this man and he comes into the branch and he hasn't been in in a while. And, this, the, you know, the, the, the bank staff noticed that, you know, he's got um, part of his face has become slightly paralyzed and his speech is slurred. And so they're, you know, a little bit kind of they note this and, and they ask him how he is and they, they haven't seen him in a while. And he informs them that he's, you know, he's been in hospital and he, and he recently had a stroke. And he says that he wants to make, uh, uh, buy a bank draft for 500,000 euro. And um, uh, they, they find him quite, the bank staff find, find him difficult to, uh, to, to understand because of his, his slurred speech. But I suppose the bank staff is, is trained you know, to, how to identify a relevant person and recognises that this person could potentially be a relevant person. 
And so he arranges for the for for Joe in my example. No offense, Joe. Uh, or <laughs> no reference. The common man. Uh, <laughs> Joe. The, he arranges for Joe to meet with kind of two specifically trained people in the branch who are used to. Uh, familiar with dealing with people with capacity issues. So they they meet Joe in a separate place where it's quiet, um, where Joe can kind of explain himself, uh, you know, in, with, with, with a bit of comfort. And um, they ask Joe about this decision and they kind of have a general chat with them and then they specifically focus on the decision and they ask him what, like, you know, and Joe explains that, well, firstly, they find him quite difficult to, to understand. So he's a communication issue, but by using, uh, by facilitating him and, and using... Um, uh, providing with writing materials, they can easily overcome this. And then secondly, they think, well, you know, does he have, because he's recently had a stroke, does he have short-term memory loss potentially? Um, but actually on discussing it with them and, you know, they realise, no, he's he's able to retain, you know, his his sentiment throughout the whole conversation and they're, they're comfortable, you know, he can, he can retain the information. But then they're... Um, and they they ask him more about the decision and he can he explains that you know he 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 wants to make a gift and he understands what making a gift is that he'll no longer have the, the this money when he makes the gift um, and he wants to make a gift to his neighbor because she's been really good to him while he was in hospital with the stroke and she watered his plants and she minded his dog and she's been great and he really likes her so you know he's he's clear about who he wants to make the gift to and he's clear that he you know, that this is, uh, he understands the, 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 the action of making a gift. And this was, I think, you know, previously you could say, well, look, you know, he, he knows what he wants to do. Um, he's the money to do it. And so, you know, he, he has capacity to do it. But I think with the functional test is you have to go a bit further because you have to say, well, do they, has he weighed up the information and does he understand the foreseeable consequences of his action? So he, although he understands he wants to make the gift, he doesn't quite understand that actually 500,000 euro is a huge, is a very significant amount of the cash that he holds. And so if he makes that gift, then the likely consequences are that his, his monthly income is going to be significantly reduced and he will have less money to live on for the rest of his life. Joe isn't able to understand that. He can't take on board those consequences. And as a result, I suppose, he, isn't, he hasn't satisfied the functional test. And I think that's, I suppose, the functional test is going to be is, is, a, is a more, uh, you know, there's a number of limbs to it that somebody needs to be able to, they need to be able to understand the decision, they need to be able to communicate it, they need to be able to retain the information long enough and they also need to use and weigh up the information. Um, and part of that is understanding the consequences. So, and I think, so that's, I suppose, you know, one scenario where you could try to apply the functional test, but I think some, you know, something we, we kind of been discussing is the potential that, Perhaps as well, like that, that, that although the act is drafted, obviously, to facilitate people and making more decisions, but in a way it actually could lead you to be really assessing people's capacity much more often. Like certainly if you have a relevant person, you're, you're meant to assess their capacity on each and every occasion because it's a time and issue specific test. So you can't say, oh, because that person didn't have capacity before, they don't have capacity now or equally because they had capacity previously to make that decision, they now have capacity. You know, it has to be assessed each time. Um, but equally, you might have somebody who you wouldn't expect to have any capacity issues, but who maybe has gone through some some trauma and you know isn't quite themselves and is having tr is having trouble. Um, and and I think that you know so if let's say if you had a you know a middle aged senior executive who comes in and is, wants to do something totally out of the ordinary, some very erratic decision, you you could think well should you be applying the test in that in that scenario because although they had obviously a capacity previously and, and they probably will have capacity in the future, do they actually have capacity at that day to make that decision? And I think that's where 
you know, potentially you could end up with a much broader approach um, to applying the test. Um, and, you know, I suppose it could it could be, you know, capture actually more than... Probably yeah, I mean, it seems to me like, you know, if you have the stroke and you're mentally completely fine, but you're just slurring a speech, like you could be completely irritated, like, band if I have a stroke and I'm dragged into the manager's office mm. just because I want to give a gift to somebody, if you know what I mean. You could see that being the reaction if you're not person, not being particularly understanding that I... You know that, but I didn't know that. And you're not in the manager's office. This is other place, but it certainly might feel like that. I can also see massive challenges around, you know, for money laundering purposes, everyone is spotting unusual transactions and so on. But to, to your middle-aged sort of business person, it's kind of example like doing something erratic. How is anyone, like, what, what's erratic, if you know what I mean? And, 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 you know, do people really know kind of their customers that well? So, you know, it is, you know, it is difficult. I mean, a column, I mean, there's, there's probably lots then of practical, yep. broad range practical consequences that we've looked at. Or and even when we were just discussing you. it through with Lydia, because Lydia obviously is very close to the detail of what's involved and what the aims of the act are, some of the different aspects from our experience of dealing with projects, as, as Joe said, normally, in a European context with more guidelines, Q&As, more of a normal gap analysis type setup that you can actually just turn the regulations upside down and see, do your policies, procedures, systems and controls line up with these various aspects? It's much more challenging. So we bucketed it into maybe three different teams of external parties. So for instance, if you were looking perhaps to deal with uh, certain charities or uh, advocacy groups or indeed the public bodies and then in an internal sense just discussing it with risk and compliance personnel and actually discussing through the issues of the scenarios of how this might arise in your business particularly the the bank branch is obviously a, a quite a, an obvious example that you would use and, and one that might spring to mind for everyone but based on your own particular circumstances what that customer interaction looks like could be quite different and so discussing and analysing what the scenarios that could come up in, in your business would be very important to think of. Then there's the obvious policies and procedures piece. And uh, to John's point earlier on about the continuing uh, continuing relations that had previously been adopted, from an internal compliance perspective, you'd have to think about how you would document that internally to say that you had considered all of the new and revised arrangements and whether that does ultimately become something that's agreed upon as a grandfathering arrangement or whether or not there is this binary point in the relationship where a decision has to be made, yay or nay. I think it probably, um, from a, an internal selfish compliance perspective, I think people would like to have that point where they can actually say yes or no, the relationship needs to continue or, or a decision is actually made. Then there's the, the internal communications piece and just the consideration around how you're going to actually discuss this with your people because it is the, the it is a, a sensitive topic, as Joe had said, and some of the customer interactions might not be all that uh, pleasant. I think the, the anti-money laundering one is a, mu is a much easier conversation to have because you can just point to a piece of criminal law and say, no, we can't do this because of that, or sorry, not even tell them that that's why you're doing it. And then there's the uh, the external part. Joe mentioned the, the reputational risk that could go if, if something went wrong in this case and the non-standard non regulatory risk, but the this is this this looks terrible on the front page of the Irish Times type of risk as well that's involved in it, given the the type of customers that are involved, that's something. And your external branding as to how you're actually treating with these uh, types of customers and dealing with these types of customers on an ongoing basis. So those were just some of the 
the initial practical points that jumped out when we were discussing it with with Lydia around the various different points. And one thing that I thought was that the, the point in time or the existence of the agreement for the register would be a useful control, but it's only a useful control up to a point because it's limited to certain circumstances that might not actually fit in with the situation that's in front of you. So compliance is definitely challenging, but as Lydia has mentioned, uh, there are ways in which you can get to compliance through analyzing various different steps through various scenarios that you have with your customer base. Again, as well, you know, compliance with the act will be very important. If your staff have come to the view that the person doesn't have capacity, their onus will be on them to prove that. So they need to be able to document how they've come to that view. So I think recording your the process will be very important. But But obviously on the flip side of that is, you know, this is a really sensitive topic. You've got to be really careful about the language you use. You don't want to be too discriminatory. So that's a further challenge. And I think, you know, we've been working with clients to, to develop ways in which you can document it, but in a, in a restrictive way, which where the narrative is limited. And so there's less kind of room for using, I suppose, language, which is just inappropriate. I suppose a person under the legislation, a person lacks capacity if they are unable to understand the information relevant to the decision retain it long enough, use or weigh it up, or communicate that decision. But like interesting, the legislation specifically says that you know if somebody can only retain that information, even just for a short time, that may be enough. So that's obviously a bit of a challenge. And equally, the onus is on, is on you really to facilitate somebody communicating their decision. So following on from that, then there will be kind of an expectation that you will have processes whereby you will facilitate people who maybe cannot communicate verbally, that there will be other systems in place to facilitate them to, to as great an extent as possible. And also, you know, another way of approaching this would be to try and develop your own internal documents or, or you know, that could be, perhaps be provided externally, but that actually break down the, the likely decisions you think people are going to be making and provide the information in a very simplified way, specifically for people with capacity issues so you know that the information has been explained in a consistent um, and easy to understand manner. Because lastly, just wanted to touch on these guiding principles. So I don't, I'm not going to go into these in detail, but the Act, I suppose, outlines guiding principles. And the idea is that if you're supporting someone who has capacity issues, that you follow these principles. And they're, they're, they kind of set out the spirit of the Act. But under the Act, the guiding principles apply to interveners, but the financial professionals and, and other service providers are not technically interveners, but all the commentary really, you know, infers that, that these principles will actually apply to you and that you will be expected to follow them. And they, again, added another layer of onus and, and obligation on financial professionals, particularly, I suppose, there's two that I thought are kind of most noteworthy, and that's one that, you know, just a person shouldn't be deemed not to be able to make a decision unless all practical steps have been taken to help. So, you know, that's, again, you need to ask the question, well, where do you draw the line as to how much you have to facilitate someone making a decision? And then two, that, you know, someone shouldn't be deemed just not to have capacity merely because they want to make an unwise decision. I suppose that's kind of reflecting some of the common law principles, which is that, you know, every man should be able to, to make his own decision and make his own mistakes. But obviously for in the financial sector, that's particularly challenging. Yeah, it's great. The common law, of course, uh, just deems men to be stupid to make um, uh, bad, <laughs> bad mistakes. Like, or maybe the common law just presumes women don't exist. I don't know. Um, so, I mean, I think that's an interesting one in terms of the relevant person. And it's funny when we were sort of chewing around, when we were dealing with the issues, 
it seems to me that like it really sort of works, if you like, as a concept, if the sort of person is sitting in front of you, if you know what I mean, and you can sort of, somebody can sort of decide, hold on, there might be an issue here, there might be a capacity issue here, and then there's like, what level of capacity and how do I deal with it? Do I need to refer to a colleague and kind of assess it and click in our procedures or for our procedures to operate? But of course, a lot of financial services necessarily delivered face-to-face, -face, internet banking and internet other services, if you like. And I think it, it's something we could discuss as a group later on, interestingly, like, what do you do then, if you know what I mean, uh, if somebody wants to do something on uh, internet, and, and particularly then an organisation has on, uh, online capability, but also real-life knowledge then that somebody has a capacity issue. So maybe they signed up, everything is fine, but then they come into an office or meet somebody, it turns out it's a capacity issue. It seems to us then there might be an issue then in ca case of then, you know, is anyone watching the internet, the online account then, and you know there's an issue, and like 5,000 a month goes out and suddenly 50 grand goes out. Does anyone spot that or join the dots, if you know what I mean, in that capacity kind of issue situation? So, I mean, like all of these things, um, they're great, great principles, but does provoke issues. And they're, I suppose they're technology neutral in terms of, or delivery channel neutral in, in relation to their application like but I guess the next question I suppose I might ask Lydia then if you wouldn't mind explaining then having having set out I suppose what who a relevant person might be and some of the characteristics then I understand if you like that there are different levels of intervention then or help or, and so on so it might be useful just to explain how that works if you like so it's not just the sort of the unlimited power of attorney it used to be there's a far more sophisticated range of options that that you'll all be faced in terms of helping people out. Yeah, like it's 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 a much more gradient basis now of support, depending on the person's level of capacity. So if you go through the hierarchy, I think the one is the person has no support, but is a relevant person. So you have somebody who has capacity issues, but they don't have any arrangement in place. There's obviously, I think, the least really comfort or protection for a financial professional in dealing with these people, because you yourselves have to satisfy yourself that the person has capacity um, and apply the functional test. And I suppose in a case, if you find the person doesn't have capacity, you may be suggesting to them, well, you know, perhaps they should go off and, and consider putting in one of these other support systems if that's appropriate for them to do so. The next level is your decision-making assistant agreement. So this is kind of the most informal of the arrangements. The agreement will still be prescribed by regulation, it still has to be executed properly, and it'll have to be notified to the director of decision support services, but it doesn't have to be registered. And the idea behind this really is that, so if you're um, a person with capacity issues, that you'll have someone who can assist you make decisions. So they can't make the decision for you. You, you ultimately have to make the decision and you have to have capacity to do so. So if you are taking instruction from someone who has, an, who has an assistant agreement in place, irrespective of whether the assistant is there or not, you need to really be satisfied that the person has capacity to make the decision at the end of the day. I think really... In my mind, anyway, I see that this is going to formalise kind of what's really happening on the ground already, which is that people come in with their children and the children maybe facilitate them saying, you know, try to explain the decision and the consequences and the impact. And then the, the, the parent, you know, makes the decision. But I think now the fact that the Act actually is, is really formalising that and saying, well, there should be an agreement in place. I think, you know, if institutions want to rely on that then for protection, then they probably should be requesting that, the, that an agreement is executed. And I think that'll be probably a big shift for people. The next level is co-decision making. So this is where the relevant person has kind of a less capacity and appoints somebody to make decisions jointly with them as a co-decision maker. And then I suppose once they've executed that agreement and the decision falls within it, then all those decisions need to be made by the two people. They, you know, if, if a decision is made solely, it'll be null and void. 
this gives greater level of comfort, I think, to financial professionals. But there's still a question as to whether, I suppose, you still need to satisfy yourselves as to whether the person has capacity. Because ultimately, even with the assistance of this co-decision maker, the relevant person should still ultimately have capacity to make the decision with their input. And like, sorry to interrupt, like, it seems potentially quite complicated. I mean, but people have to have lawyers. I mean, I would have thought the intention is that people can just do it, there's prescribed forms and they don't need to be gone down to their bad and all. Is, I mean, the, the intellectual disability, they need a co-decision maker and now they have to go to a solicitor as well. Do, yeah. do you think it'll work, you know, can, you know or, or will institutions want to be sure there is a lawyer involved to protect themselves or do you have a sense of that or is it too early? Well, the, yeah, the agreements are going to be prescribed by regulation and I have heard discussion about, you know, this is going to be very expensive for people to be putting in all these agreements and I think a lot of us know that it's already been quite difficult to get people to even sign up to EPAs. I mean, it's more common now but, you know, only, I think really only in the last few years. So trying to actually inform people about these agreements is going to be, a bit, you know, a big issue and then, yes, trying to get people to to go about, you know, incurring the cost. So I think the commentary I've seen on it is that I think the intention was that you wouldn't necessarily have to go to your solicitor. And I could see that being relevant for like the assistant agreement because that doesn't have to be registered. But with the co-decision making agreement, it's actually very formal. It's it's very similar to the EPA. Like there's a lot of notice parties and it has to be registered. So I think in that case, you're probably going to have to go to your lawyer and um, you know, I think it, when the EPA was initially legislated for in 96, because it was a prescribed form, they had thought perhaps people wouldn't necessarily have to use their lawyers. But I think, you know, given that really that that's just common practice now, I think it's probably likely that... And I'm right in thinking then for, for the assisted yeah. arrangement then, so you might have an elderly parent who like who has a, who has a, an adult child obviously helping them out then. Mm. What I've been doing for the past 10 years of rocking up, chatting to so-and-so, somebody's going to have to go, well, actually, sorry, no, Joe, you won't work anymore. You'll have to have a written agreement. I can't deal with you anymore until this agreement. I mean, well, that- I think the fact that the Act has actually made provision for these agreements means that if you take instruction from somebody who is being assisted in this way, then I think for you to actually get some protection from the agreement, it, 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 there needs to be an agreement in place. So this is a shift away from just these informal arrangements where people are just. But the institutions will have to say, mm. "I'm sorry, I, I yeah. need to see an agreement." Yeah. I think, and I think that will be a big. Sorry. And it's a it's Mind a specific you. arrangement per entity as well. It isn't something that you can rely upon that an agreement has been entered into on someone else because it's a point in time, isn't that correct? Yeah, well, the agreement will cover like specific decisions. So it might co- cover welfare or your financial affairs or and then it'll only be as valid for the period of time in which the person is, still has capacity. So once they lose capacity, then you can't rely on that agreement. So again, because the, the test is a point in time test, you have to keep keep going in assessing. Yes. Very good. But the EPA still works. The EPA is still there for people who, who do lack capacity to make the decision. And I, I, I won't go into a lot of detail on that because I think most of you would be familiar with it. It's pretty much the same under the new act, you know, largely speaking, except for slightly, um, th- there'd be a lot more checks and balances now of attorneys, which I think is a welcome. And it's a slightly different, bit more steps in the registration. But then where you have somebody who doesn't have capacity to make a decision or they maybe could if they had a co-decision maker, but one can't be appointed. Um, and the person doesn't have an EPA. Um, so, in, you know, in today's, what would happen is I suppose they'd be made a ward of court. Now into the new act, they a decision-making um, representative order can be made by the court. So the court can just make and make the decision by way of order. And I, and I kind of foresee that happening maybe where there's like one major decision to be made, like the sale of a house or something. The courts can take that decision or equally they can make um, put in a decision-making representative to make decisions for the person with capacity issues going forward. So 
that's kind of, I think, the closest we'll have then to wards um, that you'll have somebody who is, you know, where you, somebody who doesn't have capacity, but they don't have an EPA. And so they'd have a decision making representative appointed by the court. And, um, you know, the, the for the, I suppose those who don't know, the, the wards of court office is going to be effectively phased out over a three year process. Um, and all of the wards will be uh, assessed to determine really whether they still, whether they should be released from wardship altogether or whether they should have a co-decision maker appointed to them or whether they should have a decision making representative appointed to them depending on their level of capacity. So obviously for those who hold monies on behalf of wards, that's going to represent a big shift as well as to, you know, mandates in relation to those accounts and what's going to happen. I might wrap it up there unless there's any last things. So thank you very much for your time. Thanks for listening to the Matheson Private Client Podcast. If you have any questions or comments, please email porrick.madigan at matheson.com or john.gill at matheson.com. This podcast contains general information about Irish law. It is not intended to provide legal advice on any particular matter and is for general information purposes only. You should not act or refrain from acting on the basis of any material contained in this podcast without seeking the appropriate legal or other professional advice.